And I would ask you to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. We're picking up where we left off last, or two weeks ago, really. Uh, So we'll be looking this morning at verses 21 through 31. So Galatians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Now, you've probably all had it. But buyer's remorse is this phenomena of making a purchase only to regret it later on, after you've actually taken possession of that item. Maybe uh, you've experienced it even this week. Perhaps you had your eye on a particular item for a long time. You studied the specs. You considered the usefulness of it. You made your list of pros and cons, and and you scrupulously saved all of your money, and you dreamed about how this thing was going to be this wonderful, great thing that was going to come in and fill this void, and um, at, you weighed and you considered the matter. You, may, you actually finally came down to the point where you purchased it. And your heart was filled with excitement. Uh, you checked the progress of it online daily. Checking that tracking number, trying to figure out where this thing is. And you follow it through the United States as it makes its way to you till the day when it finally arrives in the mail. Maybe you even met the mailman at the door to get it. And then you rip the package open. In a moment, you step inside, but as you pull it out past the bubble wrap and you hold it in your hand, you realize that it doesn't fill you with the kind of joy and the kind of excitement you thought it would. It's not that anything's wrong with your order. It's everything that the specs and the reviews said it would be. But as you hold the actual item in your hand, instead of feeling happy, you feel this slow, throbbing emptiness of disappointment seeking down into your stomach and you began to have remorse and regret. And you even begin to wish that maybe you hadn't made that purchase after all. Well, the covetous nature of the human heart is amazingly effective at blinding us to reality. It is easy to fall in love with the idea of something only to actually get that thing and find out that it doesn't measure up to our expectations, that it doesn't satisfy us the way that we expected it to. All too often, we find that the idea in our head was much more desirable than the thing itself. You can set yourself up for real buyer's remorse if you purchase a costly item because you have a certain ideal about it that doesn't correspond to reality. And experience teaches us that we'd best make sure we've tested the reality of the thing that we're about to buy before we invest so much of our our time and our effort and our hard-earned cash. That's why uh, you take the car that you're looking to buy out for a test drive on the open road, and then if it's a used car, you, you take it to a trusted, objective mechanic to have them look it over. Well, Paul's epistle to the Galatian churches is an appeal to the believers there not to abandon the gospel of grace. The church there, the churches there in Galatia, had fallen under this bewitching spell of a false gospel, of a distortion of the gospel of grace that didn't deny Jesus' messiahship, that didn't deny his death or his resurrection, but twisted the significance of his work, saying that a person could only gain access into God's favor, into his righteousness, by keeping the commands of the Mosaic law. It made Christ a stepping stone to obtain righteousness through works. Now, although the majority of the Galatian believers were Gentile by birth, there was something appealing about the idea that was being sold by these troublers of the church, these Judaizers. And a desire was taking hold of the, of the Galatian believers that was leading them away uh, down a path from confidence in Christ to a false confidence in their own works and in their own righteousness. The, Galatians, uh, the Galatian churches were being set up for the greatest case of buyer's remorse ever trading the eternal glory of Christ and the inheritance of the Holy Spirit for bondage under the mastery of the law, which, they, which could not give them the inheritance that they desired. In our passage this morning, Paul proves to the Galatians the fallacy of their desire, that the false gospel that said they had to keep the law in order to be made partakers of the blessing of Abraham was contrary to the very message of the law itself. 
Paul's appeal to the churches is that we hear the lesson of the law and how it points us to the freedom of the gospel of grace in which we become partakers of the inheritance of Christ with him as children of the promise. The law plays a distinct role in preparing us and in pointing us to the all-sufficient grace of God in Christ, the freedom of the gospel, and the hope of the new and heavenly Jerusalem, which is the inheritance of all who set their faith on Christ. So my prayer this morning is that God would give us ears to receive this message of the law with the Galatian churches. So let's begin this morning by reading our passage. We'll begin with Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, and then reading through the end of the chapter to verse 31. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, it is written Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, at the end of chapter 3 and then in the beginning of of chapter 4, Paul described the law as a guardian, as a teacher, which imprisoned us until the appointed time when Christ came and set us free through his work on the cross. We read in Galatians 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The weakness of the law, the reason it cannot justify anyone, the reason it cannot make anyone righteous in the sight of God, is not because of anything that is out of sorts or out of place with the law itself, but because of the sin and the brokenness that reigns in us ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. The law plays a role of guardianship, excluding us from taking any confidence in our own ability to save ourselves. And it points us instead to the cross of Christ where Jesus has secured a judgment of righteousness for all who are united to him through faith. So the law of God plays an essential role in God's plan of redemption. It exposes the wretchedness of our sin. It condemns our rebellion. It codifies righteousness And then it thunders at our attempts to save ourselves. It directs us to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law's demands and the Savior of the world. But for all the importance of the role of the law, we are bound to misuse and misunderstand that role if we are unwilling to listen to its message. In Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31, Paul appealed to the churches of Galatia 
to cling to the gospel of grace, which they had received through his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does this now on the basis of the lesson of the law. He aims to let the law speak. And as he does, he shows that the message that was being presented to the Galatian believers by these false teachers, though it characterized a great zeal for the law, was not a message that was driven by a true knowledge of the law. Rather, it ignored the sermon that the law preaches, especially now that Christ has come. So the main idea, the main point that we want to see this morning is the lesson of the law. And the lesson of the law is that freedom can only be found in Christ. The lesson of the law is that freedom can only be found in Christ. This is the lesson that drove Paul to say in Galatians 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, we will be looking at that appeal in further detail next week. For now, this morning, we want to focus on the message of the law that was the foundation for Paul's appeal to the Galatians to live as free men and free women in Christ. So in our passage today, Paul exposes the message of the law and the distinction that it makes between those who have fellowship with Christ in faith and those who remain bound in chains of, in the chains of sin, destined for final judgment if they continue to refuse the mercy that is offered to them in the gospel. So what I want to do in our time this morning is to look at each one of these distinctions, these three distinctions, to hear the message of the law as it points us to the freedom that Christ has secured for all who believe in him and are counted righteous in God's sight as, as a consequence. So uh, if you have the sermon notes, you'll see those, two, those uh, three different distinctions laid out for you. We'll be looking at how the law shows that there are two different efforts. Two different efforts. Second, we'll be seeing how the law teaches us uh, that there are two different mothers. Two different mothers. And third, we'll be looking at two different destinations. Two different destinations. Now, before we get to those distinctions, those distinctions that the law makes, we want to understand why Paul goes here in the first place. The Galatians were acting on what they had been told about the law. They weren't acting on the law itself. They were entranced, they were in love with the idea of the law, but not with the reality of the law. In verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? That's his introduction into the law's sermon. The Galatians' attraction to the law, their, their desire to be under it, was not a desire that was according to the law itself, but it was according to a misguided idea. They said that they wanted to be under the law, but the way they were deserting the God who had called them to grace and Christ, turning instead to a different gospel, showed that they did not actually listen to the meaning of the law, the, the, the message that the law was meant to give. The purpose of the law, according to Paul, is to lead us to Christ. It's not meant to take Christ's place. The law is not intended to be a ladder that we use to ascend into the realm of righteousness. It's rather meant to direct us to the only place where we can get that righteousness. It's, it points us to Jesus. Paul's aim in this passage is to let the law speak for itself. The message of the law is intended to point us to faith in Christ who came to deliver those who were under the law so that we might become sons and daughters of God and heirs with him in his righteousness of his divine favor and partakers of his glory. Now, I believe that Paul's approach to the Galatian dilemma is important for us to note as we consider the role and the authority of the scriptures over our own lives. Paul told Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, or scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture finds its terminus, its end point in the person of Jesus Christ, who rightly bears the title, Word of God. Scripture must be allowed to interpret Scripture. We must beware, be, beware of imposing our own categories on God's Word. We must instead endeavor to be shaped and molded after the fashion of Christ and His Word as the Holy Spirit applies this to us. If, we are, if, if we're to try and pin down the reason that the Galatians got so far off track and started down this bewildering pursuit of a gospel that had no power to save them, then Paul's statement here indicates that they had imposed an idea on the law that was foreign to it. That was the beginning of their error. That's why they got off track. They were entranced by a false idea of why the law was given and what the law said. If they had understood the message of the law, they'd have known that the last thing they ever wanted to be done is to have this to be put under the law after Christ had set them free from it through his work on the cross. If we are to be made complete, if we're to be equipped for the work that God has appointed for us to do, then his sacred word must rule over our hearts and our minds and our desires. Without the rule of God's word, our desires will most certainly fall to lesser things. Our, our joy will fade. Our minds will darken and our souls will suffocate. So live your life by the truth of God's word. Beware of falling in love with a concept of God's word that is driven by your own biases, by what you want it to say and not what it actually says. So that leads us to ask the question, what is the message of the law we're meant to receive? And that's what we want to parse out in the rest of our time here. It is impossible to miss the irony of Paul's voice in verse 21. But he wasn't content to leave the fate of the church to petty quips. In verses 22 and 31, we see that Paul plunges into the distinctions that the law makes between those who strive to secure God's favor through their works and those who trust in the promise of the gospel of grace. Now, these distinctions are intended to show that we are not saved through human effort, but through the work of God in Christ. They highlight the work of God's grace, and they show us why we cannot afford to put our hope in our own ability to secure righteousness for ourselves, but must rely wholly on Christ's work for us. I want to begin by looking at the first distinction of law, which is that we see there are two different efforts at work. Two different efforts at work. In verses 22 and 23, Paul returns to the blessing of God's covenant with Abraham. Now, at this point in our series through Galatians, you should be getting pretty familiar with Abraham and why he is so important for understanding the work of Jesus. Paul returns to Abraham again to show from the Old Testament that being a physical descendant from Abraham is not enough to ensure the salvation of a person's soul. Membership in Abraham's house, being an heir of salvation, is a matter of God's promise and God's work. Paul says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. When God called Abraham, when he made his covenant with him, when he promised Abraham that he was going to bless him and that he would make Abraham a blessing to the world, all of those promises hinged on an, on an offspring, the coming of a son, which we've already seen from chapter 3, ultimately was a reference to Jesus. Now, when Abraham received this promise from God, we're told that he believed God, but there was a problem. 
Because when God made that covenant with him, Abraham had no offspring. He had no descendant. He had no son through whom that promise could become a reality. And so, as Abraham listened to God, he lived in anticipation of that promise for many years. As he aged, the situation became more and more desperate. It became so desperate that one day Sarah, Abraham's wife, who knew the promise and thought, we've got to, we've, and with Abraham decided we've got to do something about this, gave her servant Hagar to him to have a child. And we see that Hagar conceived a son. His name was Ishmael. And Abraham loved Ishmael. But in God's plan, we see that he was not destined to be the recipient of God's covenant promises. Ishmael was born, Paul explains in verse 23, according to the flesh. Which means that he was born out of Abraham's own desperation out of his short-sightedness, and really out of his whole lack of faith. God had something else in mind for Abraham. And so, when the time was right, God opened Sarah's womb, and at the ripe old age of a hundred years old, Abraham had another son, Isaac, who was the son of the promise. It was through Isaac that the blessing of God's covenant came about, ultimately, through his descendant, Jesus Christ. Now, the key distinction in Ishmael, the, the son of the slave woman, and Isaac, the son of the promise, was that one was born according to the weak efforts of the flesh, while the other was born according to the power of the Spirit in fulfillment of God's own promises. The birth of Isaac excluded Abraham from being able to boast in his own ability. God was not about to save the world through human effort. He was going to save the world through his work. You see, while Ishmael was born out of a fallen human effort, out of the flesh, Isaac was born out of a divine plan, out of a divine purpose that God set into motion. While Ishmael was born out of human exertion, Isaac was born out of Abraham and Sarah's own weakness. While Ishmael grew up strong, a skilled hunter with a bow, the very embodiment of human independence and self-preservation, Isaac submitted to his father, trusted in the faithfulness of God, who then provided a ram to take his place on the altar. While Ishmael went on fathering nations who wandered around in the desert, never to have a land really that was their own, Isaac received an appointment and an inheritance in the land that God had promised to his father, a place where God dwelled with his people in Jerusalem. The Old Testament teaches us that the righteous shall live by faith. The law drives that message home because it shows us the folly of human power and the folly of human wisdom. The gospel of grace testifies to us that it is God who saves us since we cannot save ourselves. The fleshly effort of Abraham and Sarah did not produce an heir, nor did it secure the blessing that God had promised. And so the first lesson of the law is that we must not trust in our own effort, but in the salvation that God has secured for us. It is easy, I think, to see the relevance of this lesson for the situation going on in Galatia. Uh, the believers in Galatia who were buying into this false gospel, trying to secure for themselves the blessings and the favor of God through works of the law, were missing the whole point. They were relying on the power of their flesh to seek favor from God, to try and get righteousness for themselves through their own effort. In doing so, they followed really the short-sightedness of Abraham's example bearing fruits for slavery, not the freedom that Christ had purchased for them on the cross. Remember Paul's question back in chapter 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness? Abraham's fleshly efforts were not able to secure God's covenant promise or to secure the blessing that God said was coming to the world. 
If anything, his efforts only brought suffering into his household. After Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, she regretted it for the rest of her life because Ishmael, she always felt like Ishmael was a threat to her son. God secured that blessing, that through the promise, in a way that only he could do, the same way that he has secured freedom and salvation for us in Christ Jesus, in a way that only he could do. The law warns us of trusting in our own ability to save ourselves. It thunders at us. It roars at us when we strike out on our own. It is that standard that comes down hard and says, you will not pass here. The question is whether or not we will listen to the message of the law. The question is, will we fly to Christ? Will we cling to him? His words are life. His work on your behalf is effective. It is powerful. He is the heir. He is the offspring of the promise. He is the one who secures a new birth for us through the power of his work on the cross and in the reality of his resurrection. Listen to the lesson of the law. Hear the warning here of Romans 8 verse 13, which says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who live by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It is fatal to try to earn your place in the kingdom of God. Because, as Jesus says in John 6, 63, only the Spirit of God can give life. The flesh is of no help at all. It takes an act of God to save us. The good news is that God hasn't abandoned us to our sin. He sent his son, the son of the promise, so that through faith we also might become children of the promise as well. Remember what Paul said there in verses 4 through 7 in our chapter where he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The first lesson of the law, made by this distinction between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit, is to teach us to flee the desire to want to trust in our own good works and in our own efforts and to trust in Christ alone through whom we receive the righteousness that we so desperately need. Now the second distinction that the law makes, the second lesson of the law, is that there are two different mothers. The law distinguishes between the fleshly, fatal works of men and the secure promise of God, which he has accomplished through the work of Christ, who is the offspring of the promise. It also distinguishes between two covenants, one of slavery and one of freedom. To make this point, Paul approaches the Old Testament in a way that might make you and might definitely makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Hey, if Paul was not writing with this with apostolic authority, we would be looking at him with some strange eyes, and we still might do that anyway. We see that as Paul writes about the message of the law, he actually turns to allegory. And some scholars think that the reason he does that is really just to shake the Galatians awake so they'll see this in a new light and realize that really the error of their way. So look at me at verse 24. After referencing these two, uh, these two different women, he says this. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, allegory is not a word that you hear very often uh, in biblical circles. uh, At least not in um, 
solid exegetical ones. Um, I actually had a professor in college that told the class that there was only one allegory in the Bible, and that was because Paul said it. And he's kind of right, because we want to interpret the Bible according to its own standard. We don't want to come to the Bible and, and impose our own meaning on it, because that can justify all sorts of things. You've probably heard someone reference something in the Bible to justify some outlandish idea or some outlandish work, and then say, look, it's in the Bible. That is not the kind of interpretation that we want to follow. And we, don't, we need to understand that even as Paul approaches this text allegorically, it's not arbitrary. He's allowing the law itself to speak, using a means that's meant to shake the Galatians awake. So allegory, at least when we're talking about uh, biblical allegory, is where someone assigns a meaning to a biblical text that has nothing to do with its historical context. In this case... Paul is connecting Hagar to Mount Sinai. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that Mount Sinai is where God gave the law to the people of Israel and where he made the, uh, the Deuteron- Deuter- Deuteronomic covenant with them. That's a tongue twister. That connection is not entirely obvious when you read through the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, when you read about God's work at Mount Sinai giving the law, the first thought, at least in my mind, is not, oh yeah, that's Hagar. And I don't think you're supposed to read it that way. But as we see that Paul makes this comparison, we're not meant to think that Paul is doing this arbitrarily. As strange as we may find it to, to be that Paul is using allegory to explain the message of the Bible, the point he is making here is very valid, and it's actually very important for his readers. The connection here between Hagar, Mount Sinai, and then present Jerusalem is the slavery of those who are under the law. That's the theme that connects each one of these figures together. It's slavery. When Paul says that Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants, he's not saying that they didn't historically exist. Rather, he's drawing from the slavery of Hagar and the freedom of Sarah to depict the distinction between the way the law of Moses held us captive until the arrival of Christ. I think Tom Schreiner explains it well when he says that the correspondence Paul sees between Hagar and, Sinai, that, that Hagar and the Sinai covenant is not arbitrary, for the destiny of the Ishmaelites corresponds to the destiny of those who lived under the law in that both ended up being slaves to sin. In buying into this distortion of the gospel, saying that they wanted to be under the law because somehow they thought they'd be able to earn their place in God's blessing, the Galatians were making a terrible mistake. Rather than relying on the effective work of God, they're choosing instead to work and to rely on their own efforts. And they're being led back into slavery and imprisonment under the law. Paul makes it clear that he is not talking about an old reality here, but that he's actually battling with a Jewish mindset that clung to the law and not to Christ as the pathway to eternal life. Uh, More specifically, Paul is probably referring to the mindset of these Judaizers who were trying to lead the Galatian believers into bondage under the the law, saying that they had to receive circumcision, saying that they had to keep the traditions of the law if they wanted to receive God's approval and if they wanted to receive the blessing of eternal life. Paul says that Hagar, who bears children for slavery, corresponds not only to Mount Sinai where the law was received, but where we were put under the guard, where we, where we were put under the guardianship of the law, but that she also corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for he explains she is in slavery with her children. In verse twenty-six, Paul explains the key difference between those who remain enslaved under the law and those who are free in Christ. He says, "But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written." Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Now, this passage here uh, is from Isaiah 54, which, which Brad read for us earlier. And the reason we wanted to read that earlier is so that you could see that this prophecy was set in the context of, of a return from exile, but more than that, of a, of a covenant of peace that would last forever. 
in this, when we set this prophecy in its original context, it's God foretelling how he was going to bring Israel back from her exile, back from her slavery, and how he was going to expand the tent to include people from all over the world. The miracle that Isaiah speaks of is the same miracle that came on Sarah, who was barren. God did in that instance what the flesh could not. And through that amazing work, he secured the blessing that he had given to Abraham, making him the father of all who believe. So, while Paul connects Hagar in her slavery to imprisonment of the law and the way the law lays forth, lays bare our weakness, he connects Sarah in her freedom to God's promise and God's blessing and to the new covenant that Jesus has secured through his blood, which is given to all the peoples of the world. The joy of Isaiah 54 is fixed on a present and an eternal reality in the kingdom of God. God's promise of a lasting covenant of peace, which he says he would make with the offspring of the barren woman, has been made a reality in the work of Jesus, who is the son of the promise, and who secures freedom from sin, from our fallen flesh, and the demands of the law through his work on the, and through the power of his cross. Paul clearly sees that this prophecy has been fulfilled ultimately in the gospel of Jesus. He presents this idea of a new heavenly Jerusalem and this promise of freedom and peace as the inheritance of the Galatians in spite of them being born as Gentiles because they had been made children of Abraham through the work of Christ and that they have been made therefore and included in the same hope of the saints who had come before them as they looked for this heavenly Jerusalem. This hope, this inheritance was just for them, was, was for them and was also for all, it is also for all believers. As the author of Hebrews tells us, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to him. Now, if you have, if you notice there, what the author of Hebrews is describing is Israel when they received the law. They were at the foot of Mount Sinai, and when they heard the voice of God speak to them, they cried, no more, we can't stand this. And Moses had to go up on the mountain to be an intercessor for them. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. Then the author of Hebrews says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is the inheritance of those who are members of the household of God through Christ. Those, that is the promise given to the descendants of the barren woman. Now there is more, there's much more we could say about Hagar, the law, and the slavery of those who remain under the law because they will not receive the good news of the gospel of grace, but choose instead to labor on in the failings of their own flesh. There's so much more we could say about that. For now, well, let's just hone in on the law's lesson of freedom and slavery. The lesson the law intends to teach us is that we must look for the greater inheritance that is given to those who are in Christ. This is the inheritance of a new covenant, and it is the destination in a heavenly Jerusalem, which is the city of God, where Jesus reigns on the throne. And that leads us to consider the third distinction that the law makes two different destinations. In Isaiah 54, verse 10, God says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Then in verse 17, we read this, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, 
declares the Lord. Membership in God's kingdom does not mean that our lives will be free of trouble. But if we are sons and daughters of the promises of God, we can face those trials and those tribulations with joy because we are members of a heavenly city. Our heritage has been secured by a covenant of peace and our vindication is ensured by God himself. The Christians in Galatia were under huge amounts of pressure. This alternative gospel must have looked so good, not just because I think it appeals to the human sensibility of things, not because they like the ideal of the law and how it gave them a sense of I'm, I'm contributing to my salvation, but because they would, not have been able, they, would have, they would not have been troubled with the sort of pressure that was being placed on them by these false teachers. It would be a relief because they wouldn't be suffering the way that they are. There's, it's temptation on every side. Uh, Paul knew the attraction, not only of the message that was being said, but of the attraction of finding some peace. And so he reminds the believers in Galatians on the basis of the promises he's just referenced in the inheritance that God has secured for his people. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Not because they were physical descendants of Abraham, but because they had been joined to him in a righteousness like his, which is by the faith and by faith in the person and the work of Christ. As you read this message that Paul has for the Galatians, you can see where he was in agony before. Now you, his voice seems to take on a sense of tenderness as he reminds these believers who are still holding on but just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So he's, he's understanding, yeah, I know you're suffering. And this has been the pattern of the people of God, the sons of God. They have suffered at the hands of the sons uh, of, who are bound in sin. Now, if you're familiar at all with Genesis 21, then you know that when Isaac was a small child, a baby, Ishmael made fun of him. Paul says he persecuted him. Genesis simply says that Sarah saw Ishmael laughing. And she told Abraham to cast him and his mother out. No way was she going to take the chance that Ishmael received the inheritance that had been reserved for Isaac. And the situation that led to Hagar and Ishmael being expelled from Abraham's house serves to demonstrate how sin and the flesh bring only suffering and pain, even though they, they promise much joy and comfort. It's a warning of what happens to those, uh, it happens to us when we do not live according to God's instruction. Paul brings this up not so much to comment on Abraham's ethics, but to draw a connection, once again allegorically, to the law's lesson of what will become those who are children of the promise versus what will become of those who remain enslaved to their sin. Those who are children of the promise, that is those who have trusted exclusively in the work of Christ for them and are joined to him by faith, have the sure promise and the blessing of salvation. Or those who remain in the weakness of their flesh, enslaved to their sin, will be cast out. In verse 31, Paul sums this up saying, So, brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The third lesson of the law is that there are dire consequences for us as long as we remain enslaved to our fleshly desires under the yoke of sin and the law. The law is an enforcer of justice. It does not profess to have the power to make us righteous. Rather, it points us to the one who can, Jesus Christ. These three Old Testament passages that Paul has referenced for the Galatians are but a small taste of the law's testimony to us that we need a Savior who can set us free and secure the inheritance of the promise. The law warns us away from putting stock in our own ability. It points us at the dirtiness of our own hearts, and it turns us away from the entrance of works so that we may enter the household of Christ through the greater doorway of God's grace and his eternal covenant of peace, which he has sealed with his own blood. As the law 
vindicates the righteousness of Christ, it also condemns all who refuse to answer God's appeal to believe. Now, the Galatians thought that they wanted to be under the law because they were misinformed about what the law had to say. In three parts, Paul shows in, in really rather shocking language that the message of the law is that we must fly to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law and the Savior of all who trust in him. If we insist that we must earn God's favor with our works, if we add to the gospel of grace, which has been received once and for all the saints through the revelation of Jesus, then we show that the heavenly Jerusalem is not our home. We are destined to be cast out. Paul made his appeal to the Galatians on the basis of the law that they said that they wanted to be under. He pled with them from the very law that they were so zealous for, not to waste a single moment hoping in their own strength and in their own power, not to allow the pressure that was being placed on them to cause them to give up the cause of Christ, but to press forward knowing that they were in fact citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem. The third point of the lesson of the law is that we must hope in the greater glory of the new heavenly Jerusalem. Our home is not in a city that has been made by human hands, nor is it secured by the weakness of fleshly works. Our hope stands on the security of a conquering king who says to his people, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Revelation 3. That is the inheritance of the saints. When the saints of God suffer even the sharpest pains that this world can muster, whether that is from the troubles that come from living in a fallen world, or whether, this is, uh, whether it is pointed persecution that is laid out on us for the sake of faithfulness in Christ. This comfort keeps us that we belong to a heavenly city, this new Jerusalem where we will bear the name of the one who saves sinners and makes them pillars in the house of God. If we're to be faithful in our service to King Jesus, then our eternal home is a reality that must be on our minds at all times. You can endure a great deal of suffering if you know the joy of the glory that lies ahead. And Jesus, the author, the author of Hebrews, tells us, for the, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross where he purchased our salvation. That joy is the inheritance of all the saints, and it is a joy that endures no matter what sticks and stones the world may throw at us. They cannot touch that. We, we've sung a couple songs today that have dealt and we've sung about this heavenly Jerusalem. This passage, if you have ears to understand it, makes that singing of the new Jerusalem take on a whole new value, doesn't it? The lesson of the law, made in three parts, is that we, we must abandon all hope in ourselves and must cling to Christ who has secured a lasting, eternal freedom for his people through his work on the cross and through his resurrection. If you have ears to hear this message, we will be spared the disappointment of hoping in an idea that does not accord with God's own testimony in his holy word. May God give us hearts to hear and understand this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have saved us out of a, a pit that we didn't even know we were in. You have saved us from tombs when we did not even know we were dead. You have exposed the blackness of sin. And you have glorified Jesus 
as the greatest friend of sinners and the rescuer of sinners when you sent him to earth to take up a cross and to lead a great conquest against the power of the kingdom of darkness and he reigns as the victorious king. Father, we confess that when we live in a physical world, when we live in a world that is dominated and where, where the, the culture preaches to us on a regular basis that it is up to us to find a way to make things the way we want, that we are, that, that we are mere prisoners of our situation and that, that we are defined by what we were born into or by how we feel. Father, your gospel goes against that. And it shows us the path of righteousness. It shows us the path of transformation in faith in Christ. And it shows us a greater inheritance that far outshines the most glorious thing that this earth can offer us. Father, we still confess, though, that we see that glory through a glass darkly. And it is difficult to endure the pain that comes along in this life sometimes so that we cling to that. And we pray, Father, that you would anchor us to Christ and give us a vision for the new Jerusalem which holds us fast in him as you work to keep us and to perfect us and to transform us, to prepare us for your heavenly heavenly realm and for your direct presence and for the world that you are making new. Father, I pray that you would give us courage that you would give us faith, that you would give us knowledge, that we would live our lives by the authority of your word, that we would not be led astray by by false gospels and false doctrines that would have us to, to look at you or to look at the gospel in an unfitting way, even a dangerous way. I pray, Father, instead that we would stand as believers and as a church on the rock of Christ, and that he would be exalted in all the earth, and that the light of and the light and life of Christ would shine, and that you would raise the dead. We, we pray that you would work in us, in our world, even as you have worked in us. And we pray all this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.